0: Last week I preached on what Jesus had to say about prayer. Uh, and since we launched the church, um, I don't know if there has been another sermon that uh, gave me more positive feedback than last week. Preached on prayer, heard more feedback, positive feedback than probably any other sermon. People just said, I can't believe what God is doing in my prayer life after hearing what Jesus said about prayer. So I was really glad uh, that I had laid aside another week today to talk about what Jesus says about prayer uh, as well. I'm hoping that 2014 is your greatest year in your prayer life that you've ever had. Uh, let me begin by saying this. Imagine for a moment, hopping into a new car that you just purchased, and it had all of the working pieces. It's gorgeous car, the one that you wanted, but they just forgot to put one thing in it, uh, a brake pedal. How would you feel about your new purchase if you hopped into a fully functioning car that was simply missing one piece? You wouldn't be too happy. In fact, you wouldn't make it far without disaster, right? Uh, All the pieces are necessary for the car to run properly. Hey, imagine for a moment buying a new lawnmower that had everything, and you took it out to mow your lawn for the first time. Maybe it was one of those, like, you know, heavy-duty, big, deluxe rider lawnmowers, and out you go, and then then you go to put the blade down, and you realize that it had everything but the blade. Everything but the blade. You'd realize that a lawnmower needs every part to actually do its job effectively. Uh, Imagine buying a new mountain bike and taking it out or or for your teenager and he goes out and hops on it and then comes back in and says, hey mom, like the mountain bike's got everything except the chain. Like you'd realize how important it is for every working part to be in place for the whole thing to do its job. Prayer is a lot like that car, a lot like that bike, a lot like that lawnmower. If you don't have all of the working pieces in your prayer life, it doesn't work properly. And maybe if your prayer life isn't what you feel it should be, maybe Jesus wants to alert you to all the different proper pieces that need to be included in order for it to run right, in order for it to go right. Um, He's sharing with us the necessary parts of a fully functioning, powerful prayer life. If we choose to leave one of these important pieces out, we're riding a bike with no chain. Uh, We're driving a car with no brake pedal. We're mowing the lawn with no blade. We have to work all of these pieces into our prayer life together. Uh, We're going to have a fully assembled prayer life after last week and this week, given what Jesus tells us to include in it. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll talk about prayer. Father, we just turn our eyes toward you, understanding that You have beckoned us to come into your presence through prayer. You want us to know what to include in our prayer lives so that our prayers get answered. And I just ask that you would work in our hearts in a special way so that as we get through 2014, we would be able to share numerous accounts of things that you did through prayer in our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, if you recall last week, Jesus taught us about prayer, and the way he did it was uh, he killed a tree. (laughs) He killed a tree, and then he taught a lesson on why he killed the tree, and that lesson was on prayer. So that was his format last week for his teaching. This week is a little different. This week he shares parables, which are like hypothetical stories, um, and it's through those parables that he's going to teach us about prayer. Look at Luke 11, verse 1. Where it starts out by saying this, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. Just pause for a moment and let that soak in. Spend a day with Jesus. Here we get to walk around and follow him everywhere, right? And then he just stops and he goes somewhere and he just kneels down and starts praying and prays and prays and there he is, the Son of God who rules the universe on his knees asking for things. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Okay, I want somebody to actually say that. So, somebody play the part of that disciple and just call it out. Go ahead. Lord, teach us to pray. Okay, good. Lord, teach us to pray as God taught His disciples. Hey, can you? Uh, can, can you? Can you show me how to do that? Now, Jesus could have said, "Kneel, hands together, eyes closed." Duh. <laughs> like he could have just said, "You know how to pray." You know, the Jews were really good at praying. They did it several times, often multiple times per day in different places. See, but they felt an inadequacy in their prayer life. They knew their prayer lives uh, could grow. And I have a feeling that you feel the same way. You know your prayer life can grow. And so, hey, listen, for me, the last two weeks, God has done more in my prayer life than I feel like he's ever done before. And I just want you to approach his presence this morning with that same request. Lord, Lord, Lord. Teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Um, The disciples asked for it, and Jesus didn't disappoint. Now, skip down uh, to verse 9. Well, actually, no, skip down to verse 5. We're not going to deal with the Lord's Prayer today. Uh, I'm going to save that for a different sermon. But after sharing the Lord's Prayer in verse 5, he says this. He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. He will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Jesus tells a hypothetical story, and he says, let me share a story, a hypothetical story. And the story goes like this. There's this guy who needs something, and so he goes to a friend or a neighbor to get it. And he goes at an odd hour. He goes at midnight and starts knocking on the door. (laughs) Do any of you have friends who are slightly inconsiderate of your time? Like, you get a text at 1 in the morning or 2 in the morning, and they decide to tweet something out that's real interesting to them or put a post on Facebook at 3. You're like, this friend is like, what's he doing at this time? Well, this friend decided at midnight to come over and bang, 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 bang on the door. And uh, I like the way this friend leaded out, he said, or let out. He said, knock, knock, knock. What? Uh, friend? He said, friend? He's buttering this person up, right? Like, hey, bro, it's me. Yeah, it's midnight, friend. Uh, you know when your kids are buttering you up, right? You get home from work, and they're like, daddy, how was your day? My day was fine. What do you want? <laughs> you know what? Buttering you up, right? This person's like, friend? What? It's midnight. Uh, I I need bread. I need three loaves of bread. Wait for tomorrow. What do you mean you need bread? Well, a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Do you have friends that sometimes don't plan well in advance and then they involve you in their crisis? Do you have family members who sometimes don't plan well and you show up to help them move and they haven't really packed? So you realize you're not showing up to help them move. You're showing up to help them pack because they didn't plan it out in advance. You know, Jesus has a sense of humor and he says, yeah, imagine this friend shows up at midnight. Bang, bang, bang. I need bread. I didn't think this day through. And, and then he characterizes this friend with the person inside. Uh, and the person inside, Jesus says, will he answer from within? Don't bother me. The door's shut. My children are with me in bed. I, I can't get up and give you anything. He's saying, would that really happen? And then he answers his own question. The answer is no. He says in verse 6, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a, his friend, yet because of, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Um, that word there is interesting. It means um, to be audacious, to be bold, to be shameless. Um, so it's almost like because of the bold, inconsiderate, rude, loud nature of how, when this person is going about the request, the door is going to swing open. He makes it clear that it's not, it's not that the friend is like, oh, my friend is at the door. I should really get up and help my friend. That's not the reason he's getting up. He's getting up because the friend is being rude, insensitive, untimely, disruptive, and this person just wants all that to stop. Um, he draws that out to make a point. This is what we would call a lesser to greater argument. Jesus is saying this, if that type of boldness, barge in, interrupt, works on a groggy neighbor, it works on a good God. You think the groggy neighbor would open the door, but a good God wouldn't, if you boldly go into his presence? Do you see how that lesser to greater argument works? The groggy neighbor will give you what you want. How much more will a good God give you what you want, if you If you go and pray. Here's the first thing we learn about prayer through this hypothetical story. You can write that down. Pray boldly like a shameless, annoying, disruptive friend. Pray boldly. How? How am I supposed to? Teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Okay. Pray like this. (laughs) Pray like an annoying, shameless, disruptive, inconsiderate, untimely, barging in friend. Pray like that. Well, that doesn't sound very pious, I was taught we need to get down really low when we pray. And we need to say reverent things like, Oh, hallowed Father, dearest is thy name. And I even need to change my voice to sound perhaps a bit British when I pray. And <laughs> I need to get a little nasally too, because nasally prayers sometimes get answered faster than prayers that aren't. Like, we get all weird when we pray. Oh, verily, Father. Hey, do you do you pray in old English? Like, what are you doing? You think the tone of your voice and your vocabulary is what? Wow, man, that accent is kicking. I'm going to get down there and do what he wants right away because I can't believe how he sounds. What is that? Jesus takes, he strips in this story, he strips prayer of all formality. Do you hear that? He strips it of all formality. I'm not saying there isn't a place for formality or reverence or even being systematic in some of our prayers. Okay, there's room for all that. The point is, we're supposed to pray boldly. Yes, reverently. Yes, boldly. Like a shameless, annoying, disruptive friend. This friend is now your new role model in prayer. Jesus is saying, do what he did. Pray whenever, with whatever the request, not worried whether God will answer. Why? Well, because if a friend would open the door, How much more will your God open the door if you boldly barge into his presence at any time of the day, any hour of the night? God, in this parable, is actually portrayed by contrast. Jesus is teaching you something about how you're supposed to behave in prayer, and he's using a portrait of God to motivate you. He's telling you what your God is like, and based on what your God is like, this is how you're supposed to pray. He's saying, be the, be the uh, inconsiderate friend, neighbor. Why? Because your God is like a friend. Your God is like a friend, a hospitable friend who will open the door for you. He wants you to think of your God as a friend who you can approach, not a groggy friend who's going to do it because he has to, a groggy friend who's going to be like, just the kids are asleep, you know. They lived in like one-room houses back here. Okay, don't think there was like this three-story, five-bedroom, whatever, where the kids were way out. The kids were like right there. They all slept on the same mat. All right. He's getting up because he wants to end the disruption as soon as possible. Um, That's not the way your God is. See, he's saying your God is not like that groggy neighbor. Your God is a hospitable friend who you can come to. He will open the door for you. He'll welcome you in. He'll give you what you need. So be bold, be shameless, be annoying, be disruptive because your God will answer you. Jesus then draws a lesson from this and uh, he says this in verse 9. He says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Three things he wants you to do. He wants you to ask. He wants you to ask. He wants you to ask like an annoying last-minute late-night friend would ask. He wants you to ask boldly. He wants you to ask. You have to ask. This is really important that you understand this. You have to actually bring a specific request to God's attention through the act of prayer. Maybe this seems simplistic and it should go without saying, but the point is this. The Bible makes it very clear that if the ask doesn't happen, the answer won't happen. All right? You have to actually say it in some form, convey it to God. You have to go to Him And make the ask. You have to say it or write it or share it. You actually have to ask for prayer to be fully functioning. And you can't just ask. You have to ask boldly. Um, Oh, oh, well, I really don't want to bother God. I really don't. He's got so much going on. I'm like last in the line. And, you know, his plans are so amazing, I wouldn't even know what to ask. So why should I ask boldly or specifically? Because my awesome God, who's so in charge, will already have a... I, I don't need to ask. Hey, that's an unbiblical belief. You're like smothering what the Bible says with some false sense of spirituality, and it's killing your prayer life. Hey, if Jesus says you have to ask, you have to ask. If Jesus says you should ask boldly, you should ask boldly. And don't let any other thing you believe about God somehow reason you out of the reality that you have to ask, and you should do it boldly. Listen, there's nothing spiritual or biblical about timid prayer. Nothing. It's unbiblical. Are you asking, let me just say, are you actually going to the Lord with the list of bold things you want him to do? Are you getting specific? Are you barging in? Are you doing it at all hours of the day? Are, is that you? Because that's the prayer life Jesus wants you to have ask. Um, He says, ask, and then he says, seek. He says, uh, we're looking at verse nine. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, he says, and you will find. So the second thing he says to do is seek. Seek help from God. Pursue blessings that God has inside. Believe that he has, as he promised, stored up good things for you. Uh, The word seek seems to imply that you are moving, you're going where God is. Uh, Well, God is always with me, right? He's in me. Yeah, right. This is a relational thing. You are relationally drawing near to God in prayer, asking, seeking, so that you will find. And you have to seek. This also implies that it's going to take time. Uh, Seeking and finding is a process. Will God give you answers to your questions? Will he provide you direction for life? Will he give you help in your time of need? Well, Well, move towards him in prayer. Seek what he has behind the door for you. He wants to give to you. He's a hospitable friend, but you have to ask. You have to seek. Uh, The third thing Jesus says here is knock. Ask, seek, knock. Uh, Knocking implies that you are making some sort of a request for God to open up what stands between you and what you need. Knock, knock. He says you need to knock. Knock. Well, well, why do I have to knock? If God knows I'm coming, he should just open the door. In fact, if he knows what I need before I need it, why do I even have to seek? Why do I even have to ask? Why do I even have to knock? Hey, listen, all these questions get you, just get you all deflated in your prayer life. I'm going to ask because Jesus told me to. I'm going to seek because he said I'll find. I'm going to knock on God's door because he's given me reassurance that God... Won't be like that groggy neighbor who from behind the door calls out, Jim, go away. I'm too busy and tired. I'm not going to open the door up. (laughs) He says you have assurance that he will open the door. Ask, seek, knock. This is an invitation to prayer. And basically, based on this relationship and the story Jesus uses, hear this, prayer is friendship with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is you behaving towards God your friend, expecting him to open up, welcome you in and give you what you need. Prayer is friendship with God. Uh, I want to give you homework. So from this sermon, here's your homework. At some point this week I want you at midnight to go to your next door neighbor's house and knock on his door. Okay? And then when he opens up just ask for bread. Hey, hey, Roy, how you doing man? Can I borrow some bread? And then just like email me what happens. <laughs> Can I borrow some bread? Bread? What do you want bread? <laughs> and go to, go to like the angry neighbor. Like go to the neighbor who you've always wanted to wake up at midnight. And, you know, on a Tuesday for a tough work day. And you know what you'll learn? You'll learn about how you're supposed to pray. Because God says, come to me as if we've got this friendship where you could do that. Just, just come. And come expecting I'm going to be the best neighbor you could ever make that request of. Just come. Ask. Seek. Knock. This is a call to take tremendous, bold, confident, demanding initiative in prayer. It's the first thing Jesus wants us to know about prayer. Hey, is this, is this gear in your prayer life? Boldness like a rude, inconsiderate, untimely, barge-in friend. Jesus is asking for it. Here's the second thing he says. He says, pray boldly, but here's the second thing. He says, pray confidently. Write that down. Uh, pray confidently to your loving, generous, involved Father. He quickly switches here and starts telling a whole different made-up story, um, hypothetical scenario. And there's actually going to be three of them. This is the second one. In verse 11, uh, verse 10, it says, For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be open. Verse 11, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Now, this is actually, again, humorous. <laughs> Okay, all the dads in the room. Which of you, if your son came up and said, "I'm hungry for a snack," can you heat up the fish sticks in the toaster, Papa? Would instead <laughs> would instead throw a viper at him? Sure, son. <laughs> Hold out your hand. <laughs> oh, what happened? Dad gave me a snake and bit me. What did you give him a snake for? Oh, he asked for fish, and I thought it would be a hoot to give him a snake. Which father would do that? Maybe you're saying my dad would do that. All right, got to tell you, my dad growing up was a practical joker. He, and he got my mom so many times. He'd jump out of the closet and scare her. He'd, he, he had, do you remember Barles and James the commercials, bar- he had a full cardboard life-size cutout of Bartles and James. And, and it was kind of comical, but if you put that somewhere in a dark room, it looked like there was someone in the room. And he would put that thing all over the house. You'd walk upstairs, and i heard hear mom screaming from all over. Ah, ah! Ah! Mom, it's just cardboard. But he would keep scaring her, right? See, but mom got her revenge one day. I'll never forget this. At a family party, she picked her time right. At a family party, my mom knew that my dad hated snakes. Somehow, I don't know if I found it or whatever, but a snake found its way into my mom's hands. And my mom saw my dad out on the deck, surrounded by all the family. And she went outside, and she walked up to my dad with that snake. Before he knew what was coming, she threw it right on his lap. And I tell you what, I've never seen my dad jump and scream so loud. It was the snake. And, and Snakes. People are like, oh, snakes. I hate snakes. And and that wasn't even a poisonous snake. You know, imagine if it was like a cobra. And she's like, ha 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 Jesus is telling you a story about a really awful father. Which father would do this to answer, no father. All right. Maybe a funny, harmless snake, but poisonous, deadly snake? Nope. Okay, no dad's gonna do that. He shares this like unbelievable hypothetical. Which of you, if his son asks for a fish, verse 11, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Answer, no one. Verse 12, or if he asks for an egg, we will give him a scorpion? That's another funny one. Uh, What do you want for breakfast? Uh, I want eggies. Okay, I'll make you some eggies. (laughs) Snake didn't kill him. I've got another idea. (laughs) It's a scorpion! It stung me. What did you do to our child? Well, I just thought it'd be funny to put a scorpion on the plate. <laughs> funny? Isn't that funny? No, that's not funny. The, the thought of a father doing that is unheard of, right? Got a picture of a scorpion here. So that's just like, put, imagine putting that on your little one's plate after he's like, I just want oatmeal. <laughs> there you go. Sting! Why would Jesus go about it this way? The disciples are like, teach me to pray. He could have just been like, kneel down, close your eyes, hands together. And he's telling these stories about really awful fathers who are harming their children. It's because he wants to teach you about your God. Um, He goes on to say in verse 13, If you then, who are evil, don't pass that up. It's a little swat. It's a little swat before he gets to the point. If you then, who are evil... You're, you're not good. Um, you don't have this righteous thing perfected. There's sin in your heart and your life. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, in case of dads, you figure it out, like even though you're evil and wicked and you figure out how to do good things for your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is again an argument from lesser to greater. If earthly dads can figure out how not to harm their children and they can figure out how to meet their kids' needs, how much more will your perfect Heavenly Father, when you ask, help you out? You think He's challenging your assumptions about God that are reflected in the state of your prayer life. He's doing that through this hypothetical story. He's calling you out on what you really believe to be true about your Heavenly Father. And your prayer life shows what you believe about your God. He wants you to know God as not just a hospitable neighbor who's going to open the door, but as a loving, involved, generous father who's going to meet your needs when you ask him. Hey, listen, he wants you to know God loves you like a father would love you. He wants you to know there's not this cold distance, I'm praying to this energy above that I could never figure out. No, he wants you to know that your God is going to treat you as a loving, close, caring Father would treat you. You're approaching a hospitable friend. You're approaching a loving Father. And if we see God as a loving Father who would never do this thing, like like sting us, who would never do this thing, like put us in danger in in Matthew's account of this elsewhere Jesus shares this same parable and he says which of you if your son asked for something for food would give him a stone so give him a scorpion give him a stone give him a snake the answer is no earthly father would do that <clears throat> and so it would be sadistic to think your heavenly father would do that your heavenly father will be helpful he will be useful A stone is useless. A scorpion is harmful. Jesus is basically challenging you because you assume prayer to God is useless. You assume that prayer to God will produce harmful things. Listen, God doesn't sting or bite. God doesn't sting or bite. And when you bring Him real needs, He doesn't give you worthless things. He's not that kind of a dad. If earthly dads can figure out how to do good things for their kids, you're not coming to a heavenly father who's going to sting you or bite you or give you a pointless, worthless response. And if you don't ask boldly, if you don't pray to God, your father, confidently, it's because you don't have a clear picture of the God you're praying to. Jesus is saying, your God will listen, your God will give, your God will love. He's also challenging us. You see, he's challenging us on thinking that we're better than God. Like, well, we've got this father thing figured out, and we knew how to take care of our kids, but God up there, I just don't know if he can do it. He's challenging us who are limited and selfish and sinful to awaken to the fact that there's a heavenly father who is none of those things. He's perfect and generous and loving. And when we know who he is, then we will come to him like a father and ask him for things. Um... He's calling us out on the assumptions we're making about God. Um, I've got a picture here just to show you that sometimes we jump to conclusions about things that may or may not be true. I've got a picture of an animal and I want you to tell me just based on your gut reaction, your assumption, whether this animal is good or evil. Okay, here's a picture of the animal. There you go. What do you think? How many of you think this cat looks evil? Go ahead and raise your hand up. Uh huh. How many of you think this cat looks nice and charming and pretty And cat people? You're so loyal. You'd put your hand up at any old cat that I threw up on the screen. That that cat has the nickname Hitler cat. Hitler cat, because of the hair up top and the mustache. The cat looks evil. And what Jesus is doing is, he's saying, the way you're praying sometimes, sometimes reveals that you think God's like that. Like an awful father who would give you things that sting or hurt or bite. Like an evil father who would harm you when you come near to him. Like a bad neighbor who wouldn't even open the door. He's calling us out on the assumptions we make about our God. You see, if our prayer life is awful, weak, pathetic, he's saying it's because our view of God is that way. He's challenging us on how we see God. And he's saying we need to see God, we need to pray boldly, like a shameless, annoying, disruptive friend, because God is a hospitable neighbor who will open the door. Hey, we've got to pray confidently because we have a loving, generous, involved Father who will open the door. God is not evil. He's not mean, stingy, selfish, or sinister. Sometimes I think God, sometimes I think we so underestimate the love of God. We feel like, I know he loves me, but I just really don't think he loves me. Like, all right, I, s- I found this one picture. I think it, I don't know, it seems like a joke, but it's a cake that somebody made for another person that they may or may not care for. But check this out. This is a picture of a cake. <laughs> Valentine's Day is coming up, and perhaps you would like to make that for your special someone. No, you never would. And what, <laughs> what Jesus is trying to show us is, if we don't pray confident that a loving father will welcome us into his presence, we basically are assuming that that's the treatment that he's giving us. We're assuming God is a bad father, a bad father, who says he loves us but really tolerates us. My prayer life treats God like a bad father when I don't ask boldly or confidently. Wow. How convicting is that? How convicting is that? Now, I know at this point, it would be good to simply briefly touch on this topic that several people asked me about. Well what, well, what about when I came to God and I asked for something and I didn't get it? I mean, there's real pain that comes from prayer. Um, how am I supposed to process the pain of unanswered prayer? Right, I mean, it sounds like you're telling me God would never, ever hurt my feelings, and I can tell you some stories of where my heart was broken This sermon is not about unanswered prayer, but I think it's fair to mention this. The pain of unanswered prayer is going to tempt you to believe lies about God's character or His plan. Things that aren't true. Pain serves numerous purposes in God's plan. It humbles me. It perfects my heart. It accomplishes God's good purposes in unbelievable ways. It reminds me this world is not my home. It creates a longing for heaven. It helps me rest in his future promises as well as his present promises. And listen, I'll preach a sermon on this one day, but we mustn't let pain put out our prayer lives. We mustn't let unanswered prayer teach us lies about God. God is a better giver than anyone you know in your life. He's a better father than any dad you've ever met. He's far better than you, and we have to believe that he's generous and he's willing to answer, and we have to keep coming into his presence Confidently, Hey, pray boldly. Pray confidently. Here's the third one. Pray persistently. Pray persistently to your righteous, just, faithful God. Here's the third story. Skip ahead to Luke chapter 18. Here's the third story. Luke chapter 18. Jesus first shares about a neighbor and a friend, and then he shares about a father and a son. Um, and here in this third parable, short story, Luke 18:1, Jesus shares about a widow and a judge. A widow and a judge. Now, a widow would represent the neediest class next to orphans of people in the Old Testament. If you were a widow and you didn't have a man to provide for you back then, or even, uh, I mean, especially if you didn't have kids, you were really the poorest of the poor. So a widow represents someone who has no power, no influence, no sway, and really no hope unless other people come to her aid. So there was a widow. Verse, chapter 18, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Listen, always to pray, not lose heart. Always to pray, not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So she had been wronged. Someone had taken advantage of this poor widow who was needy, and she had a right case, and she was going to a wicked judge asking for justice. Uh, I I googled wicked judges, and thankfully in no time, I came up with a list of wicked judges from our own great state of Illinois. Let me introduce you to, uh, this is Thomas Maloney, a picture of Thomas Maloney. They say he's the worst of the worst. Um, He was convicted, and he was sent to jail because he rigged, he fixed, not just one, Not just two, like three or four murder trials. He rigged them for bribes. One bribe that he had a part of. They don't know how much he got of this bribe because he had other people in on it. But $100,000, $100,000 bribe to fix a murder trial. He did it. Sure. Give me the money, I'll fix the case. Wicked, awful, bad judge. This story was in the Tribune. Now, let's, let's cast him in the character of this wicked judge. Imagine you're a widow with very little hope of getting justice, you don't have money, you can't probably afford someone to take your case, and you're going up to wicked Judge Maloney saying, hey, I need justice, really need you to do the right thing for me here. Got a problem that I'd like you to solve. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. No, no, get out of here, I'm too busy. no. Come on, no. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual complaining. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He will not uh, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The judge is symbolic of a wicked person who just gives justice because he just wants the annoyance out of his life. This is a lesser to greater argument again. If you keep going to the worst judge on this planet and you just annoy him to death so that he will finally give you justice, are you assuming that you're good awesome, righteous judge who's up in the heavens will deny you your request? Are you actually assuming in your heart that that wicked, corrupt, awful judge who would do it for you is better and more responsive than a heavenly father who won't? He's calling us out again on our assumptions. And he's saying, pray boldly because God will open the doors. Pray confidently because he's a loving father. Hey, pray persistently to your righteous, just, faithful God. Because he will give you what you're asking. Perhaps in this uh, story, it's it's good to include things, prayer requests of things that went wrong in your life. Things people did to you that were wrong. A request for justice, for God to make something right that's wrong in your life. Okay, those are prayers that need to go up to the Lord. And Jesus says, hey, I want to tell this story to you so you always keep praying so you don't give up. So you don't give up. And I want you to think of your God like a righteous judge who will hear your cry for prayer. He's not like the wicked judge. He's better than that. And if you come to him without stopping and you don't give up, he will be moved to action by your persistence. He will be attentive. He will be responsive. He will be good. He will be strong. Always pray, never give up. Isaiah 62, we'll put that up on the screen describes prayer in an interesting way. It says this, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, that's prayer, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Do you hear what the Bible just said? In your prayer life, it says, Give God no rest. How frequently should I pray? How persistently should I pray? How many times should I ask for something before I'm like, all right, he heard me? Hey, give him no rest. God doesn't sleep, okay, but the portrayal here is that God's trying to sleep. In this verse, it's as if a God is, okay, he doesn't sleep, right? But just to give you a point, it's like he's going to go, his head's on the pillow, and it's you who's like, God, God, God. Do you have kids who just always wake you up, right? Just trying to get a nap in. And they come up, Dad, 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 Dad. What? I'm just trying to sleep. Early in the morning, they wake up. You can sleep in, they wake up, right? They always wake up early on the days you can sleep in. They come in the bed, I'm up. Go back to bed. Prayer in this verse is depicted as like keeping God from falling asleep. It's what kids aren't supposed to do. Give him no rest. Until he answers your prayers. Always pray, never give up, give him no rest. See, but as I was preparing the sermon and I got to this point and I was really letting God work on me, man, I was convicted. Like, when I hit this point, sermon prep stopped. See, because I instantly was convicted on things that I had given up hope for. Things I wasn't praying for anymore. People I... People I stopped praying for. And like I just stopped and I felt so convicted that I was not praying persistently to a righteous, just, faithful God. And I realized that Jesus was revealing to me my faithlessness, that I would give up hope. And I just stopped. And like tears in my eyes, I just closed my eyes and I just started thinking about all the things that I've given up on and all the people I've given up on. And I realized. I'm I'm feeling like hopelessness is actually easier than trying to keep hope. And like God just like tore me up in that moment. And my prayer life, that that gear was broken. That persistence gear was broken. Um, and I felt like, yeah, but God, it's easier to stop caring and just assume that that person is never going to get saved. Right? Because it's hard to keep hope up. And then Jesus is like, yeah, but if a... Filthy judge would eventually say yes. What do you think about a holy God? And it just messed me up. And I just want to challenge you. Hey, if you have loved ones, don't give up praying for them. Pray that they would be saved. Give him no rest until they are saved. I'm preaching this to myself. Hey, do you have children who you want to honor God with their lives, whether they're young or they're old? Never, never, never Never stop praying for your children. Never. Hey, do you have a spouse who doesn't share your faith? Is your marriage not what you want it to be? Never stop. Don't give up. Give him no rest until he answers you. But what if he doesn't? But different gear. Different gear. Jesus is calling you to have in your prayer life this working part of persistence where you don't stop until he responds to you. You keep going. This is a good moment here as we near the end to bring up all the gears that Jesus has covered. Here's a picture. And uh, forgive that this looks mechanical. I don't want you to think that this is somehow some mechanical formula where at the end, if you put all these mechanical things in your voice, you will get everything you want. These are relational qualities, okay? Prayer is friendship with God. Okay? But boldness is where it begins. You on your face asking mountains to fly through the sky. That gear has to be in your relationship with God. Confidence. Getting up and saying, I'm assuming it's a yes until God does something to tell me it's a no. I'm assuming he's going to answer. You have to believe that you have what you've asked. That's confidence. Okay, but I don't want confidence to keep me from being humble. I'm going to have an open hand and I'm going to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Humility has to be in my prayer life. But don't let humility kill confidence or boldness. I'm going to be so humble, I'm not even going to ask for anything. Pathetic. No, I'm going to be bold and confident and humble. Last week, love came up where you have to be forgiving and keep all your relationships in order or your prayer life comes to a grinding halt. Okay, and today, Jesus adds a fourth one, which is persistence. Fifth one, I'm learning to count. A fifth one, persistence, meaning just keep the whole thing going. Never give up. If you work these five things into your prayer life, your relationship with your heavenly Father, who will love you like a son, your relationship with your friendly neighbor who will open the door, your relationship with a just and righteous judge who will hand down to you um, a, a just verdict, your prayer life will go where it's never gone before. God will do things that will blow you away. But I love this last question. It says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It does come down to faith. All of this does come down to faith. I believe he will do what he said. I believe he is who he is. Really, prayer is faith on your knees. That's all it is. And let me just close by reading a quote. This is from a 17th century author that I really think summarizes the relationship Jesus is calling you to in prayer. This author says this, Tell God all that is in your heart as one unloads one's heart in its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself and others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust the subject. It is continually being renewed. And blessed are are they who attain to such familiar, unreserved friendship with God. Let's pray. God, you are our father. You are our friend. You are our Lord and our judge. And we just ask that you would teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Challenge the false assumptions we have of who you are, that keeps us from praying, challenge our emotional burdens that maybe lead us away from you. challenge our uh, theological obstacles, wrong thinking biblically that keeps us from you. We pray nothing less that as we come to you boldly, confidently, humbly, lovingly, persistently that you would move mountains, you would do the impossible, that you would get all the glory for being the God you've promised to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.